VRL, how are we doing today? We're good? Okay, all right, I love that. I love that. Man, some things that I heard in that video that just really excited me. I heard kids talking about deepening their relationship to God. Um, I think a lot of us have lived long enough to know like that's ground zero. Like you do that well and you're gonna make it. I heard them talking about deepening their relationships with other followers of Jesus. Man, we, we need each other, right? Life's not always easy and we, we need to team up together. And I was really encouraged to hear several of them mention that they were excited to go back and share their faith with the people around them, with their friends. And um, man, that's, that's really what we're about. That's our mission here at Valley Real Life is to be and make disciples of Jesus. And so I just echo what Drew said. Um, thank you so much for your generosity helping to send all of those kids there. That's a huge victory for us as a church family and just for the broader kingdom of God. So thank you for that. I'd also just say thank you for investing in your church because it's allowed us to do something else that I'm directly a part of. As the campus pastor of the Riverside campus, we are just a little over a month away from launching another Valley Real Life campus. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that for sure. And your generosity and your support is helping to make that happen. And so uh, one thing I'd just throw out there, I'd just uh, give you a little nudge or maybe say make room for the Holy Spirit to give you a little nudge. Uh, we're coming close. We're, uh, we're getting close to having the facility totally ready to go. Uh, there it is. There's the front door of it anyway. And uh, that bush, you'll be glad to know, has been trimmed since that picture was taken. So uh, we're getting close to that. But, you know, we really are still working to fill out some of our ministry teams. So we need to add probably a dozen more people to our Kidmin team, some people to our worship and our tech and our guest experience. Uh, so I just want to give you a little nudge. Make room in your heart for the Holy Spirit to say, Maybe you should consider being a part. Maybe that's indefinitely. Maybe that's just committing a year. I'm gonna go be on a ministry team and get this off the ground and be a part of doing that. The best way for you to do that is to scan the code on the back of the seat in front of you and hit the Riverside link. And uh, Jesus sometimes calls us to do uncommon things, like step out into the mission that he's laid before us. And that's really what we've been talking about the last several months. We've been in this series called Uncommon. And we've really been going through this book of 1 Corinthians. We call it a book, but it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, like the first generation of Christians. And really, we're just talking about the ways that Jesus has freed us up to live uncommon lives in a time when the common thing to do is to just drift through life, hoping that more of what didn't work last time will make us happy. Like that's kind of the normal way to live. And Jesus is saying, no, I have something different. It's uncommon, but it's a life of purpose. So that's where we've been, we've been going the last few weeks. And we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the one we're going to come to this week. You guys remember, I should say, do y'all remember the TV show Fixer Upper? See what I did there, y'all? Yeah, Chip and Joanna Gaines would go to these houses that were, some of them really run down, some of them just kind of dated. Some of them were like even so overgrown that you couldn't even really tell there was a house there. And they would go into these houses and they would totally do the homeowners a solid and they would fix it up. And they would take this house that was run down, chaotic, a mess, and they would make it into something beautiful. And then, and then at the end of the show, they'd bring the homeowners back. They'd prop them up in the front yard and they'd have this huge picture. After the house was all totally remodeled, they'd stand the homeowner up in front of a picture of what the house used to look like. That when it was all run down and ugly. And Chip and Joanna would stand on either side and Joanna would say, hey, y'all, Y'all ready for y'all's fixer-upper? And they'd say, yeah, and they'd pull it back. And the homeowners who used to be embarrassed by this house and sometimes just totally exasperated by it, all of a sudden had this, this home that they were proud of. 
They, were, they had this place that they were like, I can't wait for my friends and my family to come and see this. I can't wait to bring other people into this space. And the truth is, the show was like perfectly named because those houses were such fixer-uppers and what Chip and Joanna were doing to those houses is exactly what Paul's doing to the church at Corinth. They're such a fixer-upper. Like if you've been with us through the series, there's things going on there. You're just like, how did anybody think that was a reasonable way for a human to act, let alone in the church? Like there's, there's just chaos there. And in today's passage, it's just really important for us to understand that Paul's trying to bring order into a messy situation. That's, that's the big idea. Because if you've been with us through the series, you may have noticed like he touches on some pretty like touchy subjects. Some of them are very relevant to our day today. And sometimes we can even be a little bit offended by that. In fact, some people will even say, see, the Bible's totally outdated. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, doesn't speak today's, to today's modern issues because they're so offended by um, the, the particulars of the situation. But that's because they're losing sight of the big picture. He's trying to bring order into a messy situation. And I would kind of, if I was to say that succinctly, he's trying to tell them, and by extension us, how to have an orderly church that actually glorifies Jesus, not just with their words and not just by having a cross on the wall, but that actually a, a church community of people who actually live in a way that glorifies Jesus. And so that's the big idea. The first thing that he's, he's calling them to, this uncommon calling, is to live in humility and submission to each other. Right? That's a couple of words that are just like not, not enjoyable in our day to day. Okay, we, have, we have an aversion to those things as a society. But, but he's essentially saying people who follow Jesus understand that in the church, Jesus is the center of attention, not me, not us. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse two, he says, I'm so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you are following the teachings I passed on to you. But, turns out he was just like, you know, breaking the ice with that first sentence. But there is one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, uh-oh. That'll get you in trouble. And the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying, but a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. Okay, so 1 Corinthians talks a lot about sexuality and gender roles, gender issues. I'm not sure why I keep getting those issues, but I don't know, I, I'm, I feel like I'm being hazed or something. Uh, the book talks a lot about that, but I just wanna call attention to this one right here. He's not saying, okay, now, I just, I just have to be honest. People have weaponized verses like this for years, and it's totally unfair. He is not in any way saying women should sit down and shut up. People have made it out to say that, but that's totally unfair, and I'm, I'm gonna show you why, okay? What he says is, uh, to both men and women, when you pray and prophesy, okay, prophesy is kind of a, you know, a churchy sounding word, and, and it is. Uh, basically, it's the ability to know what God is saying and then share it. That's, that's effectively what it is. And he's saying, when you do it, do it like this. Do it in this orderly way so that you don't create chaos with it. He's saying that to both men and women. So he's not saying, don't talk. He's saying, but, but when you share, do it like this so that there's order, so that people can understand it. Now, what you'll see if you were to just read through the whole letter in one sitting, in the broader context, what you'll see is that there is apparently in this church a group of women who have uh, taken to drawing attention to themselves 
and have really created quite a stir in their corporate gathering. When they, they come together, this particular group is, for whatever reason, they're creating divisions, there's infighting in between them, and so he's addressing that issue. But right here, he's actually addressing both the men and the women. He first, he, he calls the women as part of their God-given responsibility to, to do something that's pretty uncommon. As followers of Christ, he says, submit yourselves to authority. That's not a common thing to do in our society. He's saying, but, but we live differently. As followers of Christ, submit yourselves to authority. In this case, he calls them to, be, to submit themselves to their husbands. On the other hand, it appears that this particular group of men have totally neglected their God-given responsibility to be leaders. And that's kind of men's default, to defer that leadership. He's calling on the husbands to do something uncommon as followers of Christ, to submit themselves to God and to take responsibility for being spiritual leaders in their families and in the church. So he's calling each person in the church to take personal responsibility for the shared good. In our society, we say, I'm responsible for me, you worry about you. But he's calling us as followers of Christ to take personal responsibility for the shared good. And just to underscore the point that he's not, um, he's not creating a hierarchy, verse 11, he says, but among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from a man, every other man was born for a woman, from a woman, and everything comes from God. He's actually leveling the play playing field, not creating a hierarchy. He's saying everything comes from God and we're all dependent on each other. And we've been saying this all the way through the series, that God has designed men and women to have unique but equal roles in the church, in the family, and in society. And remember, the goal is to bring order to their worship so the whole church benefits. Now, there's some really important uh, cultural context to be applied, and I sometimes get nervous when people say, uh, you know, if you consider the culture, because what we sometimes do is we say, yeah, but that was a different culture, and we use it as an excuse to like not submit ourselves to God's word. But in this case, there is, there's an actual explicit reason to consider their culture. Verse 13, he says, judge for yourselves. Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without a covering on her head? And he also says, isn't it obvious that it is disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. Now, one of the things you'll notice in there is that he doesn't make an appeal to the authority of Scripture. He doesn't say, he doesn't refer to like the Old Testament law and say, this is how we do it. What he says is, we have no other custom than this. Okay, now, in their culture, as in many cultures today, this, this is not true in our culture, but it's true in many other cultures. Uh, in their culture, at their time, for a woman to have her head uncovered in public would have sent a message. Perhaps similar to how in our culture, if a married woman were to dress and behave in an overtly provocative way, that might send a message. Uh, he's saying, uh, he's talking about something that was culturally understood. So like in their day, at the pagan temples, uh, quite often, pagan, the, uh, the temple prostitutes would actually shave their heads, meaning completely uncover them, and it would be a sign, an indicator that their services were available, so to speak. 
And everyone understood that in their culture. See, in their culture, this was common knowledge. So Paul says, judge for yourselves. Read the room. Know the context. And he's telling this particular group of people, your behavior might be drawing the wrong kind of attention based on the cultural norms that everyone understands. Now, in our culture, those things don't apply. It is not a distraction if uh, a woman wants to have her head uncovered, if she wants to have short hair, or even no hair. It's perfectly fine. If a man wants to have hair that is two feet long, God bless you, give me four or five years, I won't have any hair. I'm just glad it's still there. Okay? <laughs> That's fine in our culture. None of that is distracting. He's speaking to this specific context, and his goal is to make sure that their public worship is focused on Jesus, just as it should be for us, to make sure that Jesus is the star of the show. Because when we get bogged down, arguing or offended by people's behavior or style, guess what we're not paying attention to? The fact that God sent his son into the world to die for us. Make sure Jesus is the star of the show. See, the common thing to do is to elevate ourselves, but we're an uncommon people. As followers of Jesus, we take individual responsibility for the shared good. And so the bottom line of all that really is that as the church of Christ, we conduct ourselves in an orderly fashion so that the spotlight is on Jesus, not on us. When I was a kid, I was like a diehard sports fan. Maybe some of you were like this or you have a kid who's like this. Like I knew the statistics of the 12th man on every NBA team and the 25th guy on every Major League Baseball roster. It was crazy, right? I don't know how kids do that. And uh, I remember in 1990, uh, I looked it up, it was on March 28th, Michael Jordan had his highest scoring game of, of his entire career, he scored 69 points against the Cleveland Cavaliers. And there was a rookie on the team named Stacy King. And a reporter asked Stacy King after the fact, you know, what was that like being out there on the court with Michael Jordan when he had his, the best game of his entire career? And Stacy King said, I'll always remember this as the night when me and Michael Jordan combined to score 70 points. See, in real, like, layman's terms, Paul's point is, Jesus is the star, we're Stacey King. Guess what Stacey King and Michael Jordan have in common, though? Three championship rings. Like, he's still on the team, he still had an important part, he still got to come along, he still belonged, but Michael Jordan was the star, right? Jesus is the star. So let me just answer a question that I'm sure many of you have been wondering your whole life. Yes, having a last name that starts with A is awesome. Um, you know what they do in school that's totally unfair when you're a kid? Every time you line up for something, they line you up by alphabetical order. So one of my friends here in the church, his last name is Williams. And listen, man, that's a great name. You have, you have a beautiful family. I'm sure you're proud of them, and you should be. But still, back of the line. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> when I was in fifth grade, the last day of school, we had an ice cream truck at our school. And man, the whole school, we just got lined up by alphabetical order. And guess who was out there on the playground just sitting on the swing enjoying his ice cream cone while all his sucker buddies were standing in line? This guy. Is it fair? No, it's totally unfair. So what we did was as we became adults, we came up with something better called first come, first serve. They were standing in line at Best Buy back in the day on Black Friday. Uh, first come, first serve. I mean, I got here three days early, so I deserve to get in first because I am going to get that 200-pound, 32-inch TV for 100 bucks. Uh, it's, that's how it was. First come, first serve. Early bird gets the worm, right? Fortune favors the prepared. It's totally fair. It's totally fair, but here's the thing. In God's kingdom, 
It's not built on fairness. And thank goodness for that. It's built on love, on grace, on generosity. The upside down, inside out, backward kingdom of God, guess what? You don't get what you deserve. You get what you don't deserve, which is a much better deal. The kingdom of God is not built on the idea of first come, first serve. And in this next section, it's so crazy. It, it seems that the church in Corinth have taken one of the most sacred practices, one of the most sacred observations in the church, and they've made it into an opportunity to serve themselves. Verse 17, it says, he says, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. That's like apostle speak for it's about to go down. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. If we're a church that does more harm than good when we get together on Sundays, like, I think we're doing it wrong. Like, we should draw a line somewhere. He says, first, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. But, on the other hand, of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. The divisions among you, he says, they reveal what's in your heart. Some of you have sincere intent, and some of you are in this for selfish reasons, and your intent is laid bare by this division that's happening in the church. In verse 20, he says, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper, for some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others, and as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. So in the early church, their gatherings were much different than ours, uh, generally much, much smaller than what you find in a lot of American churches. But in this case, we actually have a really good modern example of this. So what they would often do, uh, it was very normal for them to meet in homes, is they would, uh, not always, but often, they would, uh, they would get together and they would have a meal, like an actual meal to feed yourself, and then they would cap it off. Uh, they referred to that often as the Lord's Supper, and they would cap it off with what we typically refer to as communion, with the bread and the juice. And so, uh, so what was happening in their case was the people who had the means and opportunity to like, get there early, they would come in and they would just stuff themselves unreasonably so that the people who couldn't get there early, which were generally the working class and the poor, they went without. And then after they had that meal, they'd just go have communion as, nothing ever, as if nothing ever happened. It's, it would be kind of like, uh, we've been having family feast here over the summer on Thursday nights. Uh, we've had a meal, for six weeks we had a meal at 5.30 and then we came in here and had our service. And it would be kind of like if those of us who were there to be early, able there to, to be there early, we just went in and stuffed ourselves with six burgers apiece and half the people got nothing and then we just came in here and said, oh, communion, praise Jesus, as if nothing ever happened. It would be a lot like that. So Paul says, when you act in total selfishness during the meal, you're completely disrespecting the act of communion by which we remember what our Lord has done for us. When we act selfishly toward each other, we disregard the fact that our God has acted generously toward us, he said. It's a pretty, pretty convicting thing. I don't know about you, but uh, I've been selfish a time or two in my life. I'm guessing that's going around. Uh, in Matthew 20, there's this story. It's called uh, the parable of the vineyard workers. You might remember it. There's a, a vineyard owner, and he goes into the public square, and he finds uh, some day laborers in the morning. And he says, hey, go out, work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you a whole day's wages. It's agreed upon, it's fair, they go out and do it. And later in the day, he finds some other people who are hanging out in the public square. He sends them out, and they, they only work for like a couple hours. And he pays them a full day's wages also. 
And the people who worked all day were understandably upset about this. Like, we, we work twice as long as them. How come, how come they get paid the same as we do? And the answer is, it's not fair. It's not fair. Is it generous and gracious? Absolutely. And Jesus' point is, God is like that with you. I have this friend named Dave. My friend Dave, he owns a brewery. And uh, he's worked in food service most of his adult life. When he was uh, in college, he was a server at Red Robin. And so uh, he understands the whole experience from every angle. And he told me the story of uh, him and his wife went out to dinner one night. And I don't know if it was hot or he had just gone for a long run or whatever, but he was like, I was just so thirsty. And so when they brought the water, I just like drank the whole thing, just took it all down. And I set it on the edge of the table so that the server could come by and fill it up again. And, and, uh, but they didn't. So he did what I think, you know, most of us men would do. He grabbed his wife's water and took that one down, set that on the end of the table. Uh, and I think that's the natural order of things. I'm not saying it's right. It just is. And, uh, and she didn't come by and fill it up. So then he, he stopped her and said, hey, would you mind just bringing some water? Yeah, no, no problem. Well, she didn't. And the whole meal went by and he never got more water. So when the bill came, he paid the bill, but he didn't give her a tip. And his wife saw, and this is where the story gets interesting. His wife picks up the receipt and says, David. And he does exactly what I do. I'm on team Dave on this one, by the way. He says, well, she just did a really bad job. Like, I'm not like gonna complain. I'm not gonna like talk to the manager or make a scene. Like she just didn't do a good job. She just didn't really like do the basic function of you know, her role here. And I just don't wanna reward her for that. Like it, I just don't wanna like give her something she doesn't deserve and have her think that it's fine and no big deal. And his wife puts the receipt down and says, well, aren't you glad Jesus didn't say that about you? <laughs> is God fair? God is not fair. Aren't you glad God's not fair? Aren't you glad you don't get what you deserve? It's so much better for us that he's gracious and generous than it would be if he was fair. I don't want God to be fair. I want him to be lavishly loving and gracious and generous. Paul says, in your interactions with each other and in your corporate gatherings and your relationships within the church, we don't need to worry about being fair. We should be generous. We should be humble. We should be gracious with each other. And so he says at the end of the chapter, verse 33, so my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. That's like pretty obvious instruction. He says, if you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. And the big idea that really applies to every situation is that for us as followers of Christ, as a church community, we have this uncommon calling to be generous with each other, not not just materially, but in our attitude toward each other. Be generous with our forgiveness. Be generous with our judgment. Be generous with our encouragement toward each other. Dr. Lawson talked about this last week. He, he said this in such a brilliant way because he's way smarter than me. He said, in our world, we want our rights regardless of how it affects other people. But what makes Christians uncommon is that we limit our freedom for the sake of others. See, we might be tempted to think, I have my rights. That's not my responsibility. You worry about your responsibility. But friends, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say that about you? I know I am. I'm so glad that when Jesus on the cross, looking at the people who put him there, which is all of us, by the way, he didn't say, Father, this isn't my responsibility. I don't deserve this. What he said was, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this is why the gospel is good news. 
If Jesus' message is, hey, fix yourself and then I'll let you in, that's not good news. We're all in trouble if that's the message. But the reason it's good news is because it goes like this. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for me to clean myself up. He's seen us at our best and at our worst, and his response was, I love you. I want you. I'm gonna make a way. I'm gonna build a bridge between you and me by sending my son. So we're gonna run out of time, uh, as, as I often do. So I'm just gonna hit a few highlights in chapter 12 really quick, because there's some important stuff here. Let me ask you a question. How do you know that the Holy Spirit is with you? Like, is there like, is there a clear way for you to know that? The Holy Spirit, that's, that's simply the presence of God with you. God dwells among us in a spiritual way. How do you know that the presence of God is dwelling with you? 1 Corinthians 12, 3 actually answers that for us. It says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if you have been able to put your faith in Jesus, if you've come to the understanding that Jesus is who he says he is, that's actually evidence that the Holy Spirit is with you. The, the scripture says the only way you can know that is if the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. Now that's, that's gonna be important understanding verse, because verse four, he goes on, he says, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. The same Spirit gives all kinds of different gifts. The same Spirit that dwells with everyone who puts their faith in Jesus gives all kinds of different gifts. We're, we're a totally mixed bag. In the New Testament, there's at least four different lists of spiritual gifts, and none of them match. So that kind of leaves a couple possibilities. Either the Apostle Paul has no idea what he's talking about, and I think the evidence suggests otherwise. So more likely is the second option, which is that the lists are not meant to be exhaustive. They're just samplings of potential gifts. You might have others that he doesn't talk about here. He says in verse seven, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. This is essential to the life of the church. This is essential to uh, our ability to live the life that God has for us. A spiritual gift is given to each of you, each one of us, every one of us, so that we can help each other for the purpose of helping each other. A gift is, very simply, something that you can contribute. You give a gift to someone else. So two things I just wanna point out in this one little sentence, verse seven. The first one is, nobody gets to say, not me. Nobody gets to not say not me because it says a spiritual gift is given to each of us, each one of us. Now, um, you might be tempted to think, yeah, I'm just, I'm really not that gifted. I don't really have anything to offer or contribute. And I hope you'll just, I just wanna ask you, just, just trust me enough to say, this, let me say this with pure intent. I disagree with you. I think you're wrong because the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says that each of us has been given a gift. The second thing that I wanna point out is that the gifts are given to you so that you can build others up. That's their purpose. And this is where the church at Corinth was going wrong. They lived in a very spiritual society where uh, people often sought to elevate themselves, their own spirituality, uh, and gain affirmation in that way by being perceived as very spiritual instead of using their spirituality, their spiritual gifts to build others up. 
guy named John Calvin, he's one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, he said something um, that I thought was really pointed and just really brilliant in this way. He said, the more anxious a person is to devote themselves to upbuilding, okay, the more excited a person is about building others up, the more highly that person is to be regarded. Just think, think about that, like the people you've known in your life that you're like, man, they're, they're just awesome, I just wanna be like them. They're usually the people who are really dedicating to building others up, right? People don't remember what you say as much as they remember how you make them feel. It makes sense. The more, the more someone is committed to building others up, the more highly we should regard them. So, so just hear me on this, this one verse. You are gifted by the Spirit. Have confidence in that. The Holy Spirit is with you. And two, whatever gifts you possess, you have them for the benefit of others to build up the church, they're, they're not dormant. It's not a question of whether you have gifts, it's a question of how we're using those gifts. Don't, don't let them stay dormant because they're meant to build up the whole church. So here's the ones that he mentions in chapter 12. The ability to give wise advice, special knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, speaking in tongues, the ability to interpret tongues. Again, not exhaustive. There are many, many others. And the last verse from chapter 12 that I'll mention is, it is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which, which gift each person should have. The Holy Spirit decides which gifts you get. You might want others. Uh, man, I wish I could sing like my friend Caleb. I really wish that, but the Holy Spirit didn't give me that gift, so I gotta move on. Okay. The Holy Spirit decides, and honestly, in our culture, some of them get a lot more glory than others, and that's unfortunate because it sort of implies that some are more important than others. And if I'm just really honest, I think people who have one of these on their head right here, they get way too much credit. People who have a microphone get too much credit, good and bad. So I'll just mention a few other gifts that I've noticed around here. Um, I've been here about five months now, and I can't even tell you how many people have told me some variation of this. I knew this was gonna be my church home as soon as I walked in because of the way I was welcomed. You might have been standing out there as a greeter thinking, yeah, I'm just holding the door and smiling. That was a spiritual gift. I've talked to several people who had deep soul heart level impact by the person who just opened the door and said, good morning, welcome to Valley Real Life. That's a gift. I can't tell you how many people I've met here who came here struggling with an addiction and they just met a group of people who were, you know, broken just like them, but they treated them with dignity and pointed them to Jesus. That's a spiritual gift. These are, these are spiritual gifts, like normal, normal stuff. How about this one? I drove onto the campus a couple Thursdays ago. There was a kid's camp here, and there were hundreds of kids. I mean, the place, it was like, it was like a giant anthill. It was just overrun with kids. And when I drove onto the campus, I was up by the road, and there was like this huge multicolored cloud of dust over the field. Some of you were there, you remember that. And uh, I mean, it was like mildly, it was like apocalyptic. It was like terrifying. So I'm walking up toward the front door and this little guy comes sprinting straight at me. He's like coming at me. I'm like deer in the headlights. He's covered in dust. I thought he was gonna try to hug me or something. It was terrifying. And he stops right here in front of me, opens his mouth and he spits out like a cue ball size of purple chalk, just falls to the ground. And I was like, buddy, I don't think you're supposed to eat that. And, uh, but are you having fun? I asked him, he's having fun. And he just like lets out this primal scream and turned around and sprinted back out to the field. And I was like, he is having fun. This is awesome. And like the whole thing, if you remember how, like what the campus looked like and all the decor, like it, it was amazing to have all these kids here having just this crazy Jesus-centered fun. It was so awesome. But you know what just really like gets me by the heart that I'm just really proud of? 
the 100 plus people who showed up here in the middle of the work week, Monday through Thursday, and made it happen. These kind of peoples are heroes in the kingdom. Man, yes, yeah, thank you for doing that. I will, I'll never forget my fourth grade Sunday school teacher. I don't remember a word he said. We called it Sunday school back then. I don't know whose idea that was, but his name was Greg Olson. And I just remember like every week he would like give me a headlock and wrestle me around and love me. And then he'd give me a hug at the end and it was awesome. He's a hero. It's a spiritual gift to make someone feel valued and loved. This week, group leaders are gonna invest in their life groups. Hundreds of people are gonna pray for the prayer requests that come in this week. Facilities volunteers are gonna be here when nobody else is looking, cleaning the place up and getting ready for the events that are coming up. Dozens of people on Tuesday are gonna come up to the Riverside campus and help us get the renovation over the finish line. All of these people who use what they have to serve the body in ways that go unappreciated and unnoticed, these are the heroes in the kingdom, not just the people with the microphones. And I think we need to be able to look at each other and say, what you have matters to this family. Every gift is important. All right, the letters, the numbers just turned red. I should wrap this up. Somebody might say, yeah, I hear you, Kelly, but I, my gifts are really not that important. I don't really have anything super value, valuable to add. If you were to read the rest of chapter 12, which we won't, Paul compares the church to a body. It's where we get the phrase body of Christ. And he says, each of you is a different part of the body. And so I guess my question would be, if you think your gift's not important, which part of your body would you be okay living without? They're all important. Some of them are more, uh, get more credit than others, but they're all important. And Jesus says, in his kingdom, actually the last is the first. The least is actually the greatest. Somebody might say, I have a gift, but I'm just kind of nervous about stepping out to use it. I'm kind of afraid of that. Maybe it's just a matter of like, I know I'm good at it, but I'm afraid of commitment. Can I just tell you the voice of fear? That is not the voice of God. The most commonly given directive in the entire Bible is some variation of the phrase, do not be afraid. Uh, somewhere between 150 and 360 times it's spoken in the Bible. Do not be afraid. That is not God's will for you. There's a guy named Erwin McManus who said, what you fear establishes the boundaries of your freedom. If you just stop where you're afraid, that's the boundary. There's no more for you. That is not the voice of God for you. You will never be more free than when you're freely using your gift to build up the body of Christ. And lastly, somebody might say, yeah, that's cool, but if you knew me and you knew my life and you knew where I've been and what I've been involved, if you really understood me, you wouldn't want me serving the church. The Bible has a pretty clear answer for that. In Romans 5, 6, it says, when we were utterly helpless, when we were powerless to fix ourselves, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. If you've made a mess of things, if you've been incapable of fixing yourself, guess what? You're exactly the kind of person Jesus died for. He didn't die for perfect people. They think they don't need a savior. But there are no perfect people. If you're broken, you're the kind of person he died for. If you're unsure of your abilities, you're exactly the kind of person that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to. If you live on the outside, if you feel like you're on the periphery and everybody else is a part of something, you're exactly the kind of person that Jesus is inviting into his family. And if you've spent too much time and energy trying to find your lane, trying to find your purpose, you're exactly the kind of person who has a role to play in the body of Christ. I wanna just invite the band to come back out. We're just gonna take a couple of minutes to just, just reflect on the fact that each of us 
has a gift, and God's calling us to use it to build up the body. So I wanna ask you, if you would stand with me, I'm gonna pray for you, but I wanna ask you this one quick question. How can your gifts be used to make a way for others? How can you use your gifts to make a way for somebody else to walk with Jesus? That's a pretty uncommon question because in our society, we generally think, well, how can I use my abilities to get ahead? How can I use my abilities to serve me, to make an impression, to gain affirmation? I just wanna encourage you, it's not about perfection. I'd encourage you to keep in mind that amateurs built the ark and professionals built the Titanic. It's, it's not about being perfect. There's a bunch of broken people standing up here, a bunch of broken people out there. We all need Jesus. It's not about being perfect. It's about using the gifts God gives us to build up his church. Lord, I thank you that you see us as we are and you want us, that you made a place for us, that your goodness and your mercy are gonna follow every one of us who says yes to you for the rest of our lives. And then we'll dwell in your house forever. Lord, you have good things in mind. And so, Lord, I pray you would help us to take that generosity that we've received from you and turn around and show it to the rest of your family and to the rest of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.